This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Religion, Exoteric, and Esoteric. And we had a visiting group of Jewish students from the Temple Beth Israel. It was recorded September 30, 1990, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I'm going to talk about religion, esoteric, and exoteric. Two aspects here. Exoteric is spelled E-X-O-T-E-R-I-C, and it, has, it means a lot of things, but it, you can think of it as having the meaning of something outward, exterior. And esoteric, E-S-O-T-E-R-I-C, is inward, has an inward focus to it. So there are these two aspects to religion, the outward, the exoteric, and the inward and the esoteric. How are we going to understand this? One of the best ways to understand any religious tradition or traditions is through stories. And this is a story uh, about the Baal Shem Tov. By the way, if I pronounce, mispronounce any of these things, I hope you correct me. <laughs> um, the Baal Shem Tov. Who, who knows who the Baal Shem Tov is? This will be interesting. A couple. I've heard many stories. You've heard the you, story. You might have heard this story. Then. The ball, for those of you who don't know, how ignorant sometimes we are of our own traditions. It's very interesting. We go off to study other traditions, and we don't even know our own traditions very well. <laughs> the Baal Shem Tov was the founder of Hasidism, and he lived in uh, uh, Podolia, which is either in Russia or Poland. I don't know where the border is now. It's, uh, I'm pretty sure it's in Poland. In Poland yeah, now, yeah. Let's see. I'm not sure if that was, was, it was, if those days was Poland. Mm -hmm. And uh, he lived 1700 to 1760. And we don't know anything about him in terms of his own writings. We only know stories about him. And other people have told us what he taught and so forth. And he was a, a, a spiritual teacher who grew out of the people. In other words, he didn't go to any fancy seminaries or colleges or you know have any degrees or anything like that. And he attracted this following, word spread, of this really powerful, tremendously powerful spiritual teacher. And some of the more orthodox rabbis were a little surprised and maybe even a little shocked at this. And one uh, rabbi, Rabbi Dov Ber, who was a, a great scholar and very learned, he decided, he lived in a town a few days' journey from Podolia, and he decided he'd go and he'd test the Balsham Tov, see what this was all about. So he got a servant, and they got into a coach, and they went to Podolia, and uh, he checked in at the local inn, and then he went up to the Balsham Tov's house, and he was all prepared to talk about the Torah and the Talmud and all this stuff. And the Balsham Tov just told him these stories, a lot of these Hasidic kinds of stories, which Dov Bear didn't get at all. And he was very disappointed because he'd come for this learned discussion. So at the end of the day, he went back to, this, to the inn, and he told the servant, pack the bags, we're going home. This is, this is uh, useless. But after dinner, the Baal Shem Tov sent word he wanted to see him again. So Rabbi Dov Bear had nothing else to do that evening, so he thought, well, one more time. So he goes up to the Baal Shem Tov's house, and the Baal Shem Tov gives him a book called The Tree of Life. It's a Yahim. Who knows what the Tree of Life is? It's a Yahim. It's the Torah. Huh? It's the Torah. No. Tree, according to my source, it's Tree of Life. It's a Kabbalist text, right? Right, it's also yeah. the, it's it is in the Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim means the, the Torah, uh -huh. or the Torah is referred to as Eitz Chaim, 
And then the, it also means literally the tree of life, which was a, also a mystical text. Right. Well, this is, I think, the mystical text we're referring to. And he gives them this. Now, this is the Kabbalist text. Very difficult. Very spiritually, very advanced. And the Baal Shem Tov hands the rabbi this particular passage. And he says, explain this to me. And so the rabbi reads it. And uh, he gives his interpretation. Uh, very learned, scholarly interpretation. And the Baal Shem Tov says, you haven't understood a word of it. And the rabbi's a little shocked at this. And he says, well, I tell you what, you give me your interpretation, and then I'll judge and see who's, who's got the right interpretation. So the Baal Shem Tov takes back the text, and he starts to read it. Now, it happens in this text, the names of various angels are mentioned. And as the Baal Shem Tov is reading, the room fills with light, and the angels actually appear. And Rabbi Dov Bear can't believe this. And when he finishes, the Baal Shem Tov says to Rabbi Dov Bear, he says, your, your interpretation was correct, but it had no soul in it. So at that point, the rabbi calls in a servant. He says, go home, tell him I'm staying here for a while. I'm going to study with the Baal Shem Tov. And then at the end of this story, it says, the Hasids heard this from the mouth of Rabbi Dov Bear himself. A blessing on his memory. Very important, the, the link of the transmission here. Now, what is the meaning of this story? We can take it in, in several ways. You could take it literally. You could take it literally in meaning that uh, when the Baal Shem Tov read this text, that actually, you know, the room filled with like physical light and angels were dancing around the way you saw, some of you saw stuff in the carpet there. We could take it that way. And then we would dismiss it, perhaps, as a piece of superstition, just some folktale that came down to us. We could take it poetically, and often we tend to do that today in our, in our culture today. It's, it's sort of a, a beautiful story, it's poetic imagery in it, it's exaggerated, uh, and then it has some sort of feel to it, a nice feel to it. Or we could take it symbolically, and we could look for what is the meaning of this story. What is the, what is behind this? And the story itself is about the difference between exoteric understanding and esoteric understanding. This is what the Baal Shem Tov meant when he said to the rabbi, you have the correct interpretation intellectually, learned, scholarly, but there's no soul in it. You don't really understand what this is about. And in all religions, you find this this uh, difference. You find the mystics who claim that there is a deeper understanding that is not readily available just through intellectual learning. It comes through your own personal experience, a deeper level of understanding. So the story itself is about uh, the difference between exoteric and esoteric understandings. Now, this is characteristic of all religions. And what is a religion? Well, let's start with the very basic. What is a religion? What does religion mean? Why are there religions? Sometimes it seems kind of weird, and especially in our scientific culture. We say, well, those people back in the past, you know, they didn't really know what the world's about. We know what the world's about now because we have science. So they had to make up all these stories. But the word religion itself, it comes from the Latin root, two words, 
re, which is like in return, which means has the idea of returning to some original source, and lig, which means to bind, uh, obligation. You see the lig in there. Ligament that binds two bones together. Lig is in there. So religion means to be bound back to an original source. Uh, you could ask this in terms of questions like, uh, who are you and where did you come from and where are you going and what are you doing here? You stop and think about it, it's quite amazing. I mean, it's first of all, it's amazing there's something here rather than nothing here. And then, where did you come from? I mean, we have all sorts of biological explanations. They just really just push the, the question back. You know, well, I came from my parents. Well, where'd your parents come from? Well, if you're an evolutionist, you know, they came from apes and all the way back down to amoebas in the sea. Well, okay, where, but where did it all come from? What was the source of all this? Can we even know? Is it possible? Perhaps it's not even possible. But some people say that you can know that there is a way to get back to the source, to understand. Let me read you something. This is a report from a Eskimo shaman. His name is Ayua, A-U-A. This was uh, reported to a Scandinavian explorer, Nudram Musen, around the first of the century, the turn of the century. And he visited all these uh, Eskimo and Siberian communities, and he recorded the their myths and stories, and interviewed shamans. Everyone knows what a shaman is? Right. We would say a, a medicine man or a medicine woman is, you know, our sort of Western interpretation of it. They were the religious leaders of these uh, primitive, and I, I use that word only in, to place it historically, of these primitive societies. And they were the rabbis and the priests and so forth. And he's explaining how he became a shaman. And he says, Then I sought solitude. And here I soon became very melancholy. I would sometimes fall to weeping and feel unhappy without knowing why. Then, for no reason, all would suddenly be changed, and I felt a great inexplicable joy, a joy so powerful that I could not restrain it, but had to break into song, a mighty song, with only room for the one word, joy, joy, joy. And I had to use the full strength of my voice, and then in the midst of such a fit of mysterious and overwhelming delight, I became a shaman, not knowing myself how it came about. But I was a shaman. I could see and hear in a totally different way. I had gained my kwamanak, which is an Eskimo word, my enlightenment, the shaman light of brain and body, and this in such a manner that it was not only I who could see through the darkness of life, but that same light also shone out from me, imperceptible to human beings, but visible to all the spirits of the earth and sky and sea. Now this report was, I say, only about a hundred years old, but really it's an echo of our distant past. At least we assume that our ancestors way back were like these shamans, that societies were like these shaman, shamanic societies. And here we have someone who went off into solitude, into the forest, to the mountain, and had this kind of breakthrough, realizing something, a, a reality beyond this world of appearances, described in terms of light and joy, and a certain kind of spiritual power that's gained. And that's what makes this person a shaman. 
And this hasn't changed. This is always the source of religion. If we look to the great religions of the world, for instance, Hinduism, where does Hinduism come from? The originators of Hinduism are referred to as rishis. They're lost in the mists of time. We know some of their names, but we really don't know anything about them historically. They're called rishis in the Vedas and the Upanishads. And what does rishi mean? The seers of Brahman. Brahman is their name for God or the ultimate reality, the ground of all being. So this idea that, that these people saw directly through their own experience. And then they passed on this information, eventually it was written down in the scriptures, the great Hindu scriptures, the Vedas and the Upanishads and so forth. And it comes down to us. In Buddhism, you can see this more directly because we have a historical figure. The story of the Buddha is he went searching for what is reality, truth, the riddle to the key of life and death. And he ended up, after a long search, sitting under a Bodhi tree. By the way, in this position, one of the reasons this lotus position is traditional. And he vowed not to move. And he sat there all night. And various things happened to him all night. And in the morning, he was enlightened. He understood. And all of Buddhism flows from this experience. I say that in quotations because it's not quite like a normal experience. But it's a direct kind of understanding. He didn't sit down under the tree and figure things out intellectually. He got it directly, so to speak. And so this becomes the seed of Buddhism. What about Judaism? Where does it come from? The prophets who what? Spoke with God, Abraham and Moses who go into solitude. Moses goes up to the mountain. And what's there? A burning bush, light, this image of light, always. This direct communication. Moses didn't go up to the mountain and sit down and figure out the Ten Commandments intellectually and say, well, now, what's good for the society? You know what I mean? And out of the prophets of Judaism, same, same thing as in Hinduism, the rishis. Out of the early prophets, grows up a whole tradition. Christianity is an offshoot of that through Jesus, who again is baptized by the Spirit, not just by water. And it's symbolized in the Gospels as a dove coming down as Jesus is baptized. There's some sort of something happened here that's, if you like, super mundane. And Muhammad goes into a cave to receive the Quran. Again, solitude. And he receives the Quran. It's a revelation. He doesn't sit down and figure it out. All the great religions we can trace back to these kinds of experiences that go all the way back to what this shaman reports. So we have here the esoteric core of religions. Now, there's a big problem, however, when you get down to it. Because this kind of knowledge can't be really communicated in words. Can't be communicated in words. And this is a big subject in itself, but we can begin to understand this a little bit when we, when we realize that words divide things up. If you use a word, you've already divided the world up. All I have to do is name something. By the way, it's very interesting. In, in many traditions, not just Judaism and Christianity and so forth, but even in the East, the world comes about through naming. God or Brahman or whatever names things. Because let's say I name this pillow. 
all I have to do is name this pillow and I've already divided and distinguished it from everything that isn't pillow. So I've already made a division. But the reality that these mystics are referring to is a complete, whole, undivided reality. It's the ground of all being. It doesn't exclude anything. So even when we think of words like perfect or complete, then in our own minds that excludes what's imperfect or incomplete. So how do you find a word that has this all-encompassing kind of idea? And even if you have a word, what does it mean to someone who doesn't really know that for themselves? So once you have this enlightenment, this breakthrough, this what's technically sometimes called gnosis. Gnosis is a word that means uh, a third way of knowing things, not through the intellect and not through direct sensory experience, but another way of knowing things. What do you do with it? How do you communicate it? Let me read you just a couple more here. Brief little things. This is from Shankara. Shankara is a great Hindu teacher. And he came later, after the Rishis, and he's a mystic, and in all traditions, this is the role of mystics. They realize what the founders realized, and they remind us, they say it again, in their own words. But listen how similar this is to, for instance, Ayu's description. Shankar says, the ego has disappeared. I have realized my identity with Brahman, and so all my desires have melted away. I have risen above my ignorance and my knowledge of this seeming universe. What is this joy that I feel? Who shall measure it? I know nothing but joy, limitless and unbounded. The ocean of Brahman is full of nectar, the joy of the Atman. The treasure I have found there cannot be described in words. The mind cannot conceive of it. My mind fell like a hailstone into the vast expanse of Brahman's ocean. Touching one drop of it, I melted away and became one with Brahman. Again, what is the same thing? Ayu says this joy, the unspeakableness of this experience. Very similar. One last one, quickly. This is St. Teresa of Avila, a great Christian mystic from the uh, 17th century. And this, she talks about the whole mystical spiritual path. This is a book called Interior Castles, and she likens it to, to uh, going through a, a castle with various chambers or mansions. And you, you go through and you get to one room and then you get to another room and another room. And we're going to get into that in a minute because this idea that on a spiritual path, there's a certain kind of progress here. That this kind of understanding deepens. As, for instance, happened to Rabbi Dov Bear. His understanding was at one level and then when he went to the Balsham Tov, it deepened. He saw that there was something else to, to be understood. But at the end of her path, she says this. This instantaneous communication of God to the soul is so great a secret and so sublime a favor, and such delight is felt by the soul that I do not know with what to compare it, beyond saying that the Lord is pleased to manifest to the soul at that moment the glory that is in heaven in a sublimer manner than is possible through any vision or spiritual consolation. It is impossible to say more than that the soul is made one with God. Now here's a Christian mystic from the 1600s, isn't what she says very similar to what Shankara said 700 years before in India? They never read each other. I mean, they didn't study each other, you know. This comes out of their own experience. 
Now, when we hear things like that, we read these things, I mean, we have to make choices about this. Maybe they're all a little nuts, you know. Maybe they're all a little psychotic. Maybe they are standing on their heads too long, as someone said, and it went to their blood went to their brains or something. Uh, but you should consider this. It's important. You don't just accept it, you know. But when you read the mystics of various traditions, they'll express things in different language, in the language of their tradition, but you'll start to see this over and over again. You find similar, almost sometimes identical expressions of this. This sense that you that there is something else to, to know about this world than appearances, than just sheer appearances. But how do you communicate it? What do these great spiritual teachers and leaders of humanity do? Especially since it just can't be stated in words. There'd be no problem, you know, if a mystic could just say, well, this is the truth. If a mystic just tell everybody the truth, they'd know the truth, and everything would be fine. There's a story about the Buddha, uh, a famous sermon of the Buddhas. And uh, in the East particularly, silence is considered one of the, the great methods of teaching. Very often a disciple will ask a guru, a guru is a teacher, a question, and the guru just won't say anything. And it's, it's not that the guru has gone to sleep or didn't hear the disciple. It's that the silence itself is supposed to be the communication. And what comes close to that is considered a high teaching. And there's a story about the Buddha who one day sat down in, in front of an assembly of a thousand monks. And he gave this sermon. He picked up a flower and he twirled it. Yeah, and they all sat there like that. One guy in the back went, ah, clapped his hands, bowed to the Buddha and left. One out of a thousand got it. Now, the Buddha was a compassionate fellow. So he didn't stick with just this kind of teaching. He saw everybody going, ah, and he started to explain. And he explained the best he could, and he started using words. And we can see in that story how a tradition evolves. A shaman, a mystic, has this kind of breakthrough and tries to communicate it and starts to speak in metaphors and analogies and starts to recommend practices, by the way. Just as Ayu said, he found solitude. He went off into solitude. Well, this is very traditional. This is what retreats are all about. Simple little retreats. This is what the Sabbath is all about, really. The Sabbath is to take one day out of seven and dedicate it to God, to thinking about something other than your daily business. It's formalized and so forth, but it's, it's no different in essence than what Ayu did when he went off into the forest seeking solitude and left behind his kayak and his, you know, harpoons and so forth and said, no, today I'm not going fishing. I don't care uh, how hungry I am. I don't care how desperate I am. That one day, this has to be put aside for this kind of quest, this inner esoteric quest. So we can see how traditions grow out of this quite naturally. Teachings are given, they're passed along from generation to generation, they're eventually written down, they're enshrined, they become Holy Scripture, and rightly so. They contain a tremendous wisdom. Rightly so. Practices become very formalized, ritualized. Well, the Christian Mass is a very good example. Jesus, uh, just before he was crucified, sat around with his disciples, and you can just picture the scene. He served bread and wine, and he passed out the bread, and he says, you know, what my life is like is like this bread and this wine. The sacrifice for you, 
It's a very profound meaning in that teaching. Because the spiritual path involves self-sacrifice, always, in all traditions. And that sounds, I know, very dire. But it's not necessarily so. Really what we should say is, what the spiritual path involves is the sacrifice of the delusion of a separate self that's all locked up in a body as an individual entity that is not connected with all the rest of things. That's what really has to be sacrificed. So the central Christian message, this idea of Jesus' sacrifice, has a tremendously profound meaning. This then, in order to remind the congregation, gets formalized into a Christian mass. So you go to a Catholic church today, and instead of Jesus sitting around the table, you know, breaking some... Uh, some bread and passing out some wine and, you know, gabbing with his disciples, you have this very formal ritual, which again is not a criticism of it. Things, particularly in non-literate cultures, things get passed down through ceremony and these kinds of forms. There's a very interesting uh, discussion of this in Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which I recommend to anybody, by the way, I think all of you would enjoy it. Uh, it's a kind of survey of the mythologies of the world. But he talks about just this one example. This is a statue of Shiva. Shiva is a Hindu god, uh, generally considered the god of destruction. But there are uh, particular worshippers of Shiva. India is a very interesting spiritual culture because in India there are lots of gods and people can be followers of Shiva or Vishnu or Krishna. But there's an understanding that all these gods are only manifestations of the one Brahman. So they're not quite like God the way we think of it in the West, which is an absolute. They're a form, and you could be a worshiper of Vishnu, and I could be a worshiper of Krishna, and we might kid each other about the differences in our worship and so forth. But we both understand that this is, this is only at an exoteric level, that we're both worshiping, in a sense, Brahman through these various forms. But anyway, Shiva, here's this, what we might think of as an idol, you know, think of the East, they're all idol worshippers. So that's, that's the way we used to think of the East in our, in our Western imperialist days. Now, it's interesting about this idol. Henrik Zimmer, who was a great student of Eastern religious art, called it a sermon in form. A sermon in form. It is not just a pretty statue. Everything about it is symbolic and has a meaning. All the details of the dress and so forth. But I'm just going to talk about a, just the posture here and a few little things. For instance, in this hand, this is one of, he's got four arms, you notice, Shiva. In this arm, he's holding a drum. You can't see it in this picture, but it's one of those little hand drums, which symbolizes time. It's the beat of time, time passing. This, the symbol of this world, of this temporal world, this world of appearances. In this hand over here, he's holding fire. He's the god of destruction and this is symbolic of what time does. Time is the destroyer of all things. Time is the destroyer of our own individual lives. We're born and we die. All things are ephemeral. All things pass away. It seems. And this causes us great suffering. It's a source of great suffering and despair even. Because if that's all there is, then it's true. Life is pretty meaningless. But Shiva also holds up another one of his right hands like this, and this gesture is the fear not. Fear not. Why? Well, this arm points down to the lower portion of the figure, particularly this leg here. The, the right leg is 
is standing on a dwarf, this, this prone dwarf, which represents ignorance. But the left leg is raised. That's the release from ignorance. So the right arm is pointing to the left leg, which is saying, fear not because there is release from this kind of ignorance. The ignorance here is thinking that that's all there is, is just time and birth and death and just what we normally see. So the whole statue is a spiritual teaching, a sermon in form. And so a Hindu contemplating the statue isn't worshipping just an idol, a piece of uh, metal if it's cast out of bronze or whatever. The whole message is contained. It's a reminder. It serves to remind us. This is what exoteric forms do for a religion. They remind us of this revelation that somewhere down the road, somewhere back in the past, or maybe even more immediately if you're in the presence of the Baal Shem Tov, is possible for you, is available. But there's a problem. There's always a problem. Buddhism is one of the religions that understands this as a whole the best. And the Buddhist texts themselves are full of passages, teachings from the Buddha saying, my words are only fingers pointing to the moon. You know, if you want to show somebody the moon, you point to it. And the Buddha constantly says, don't fix on the words. Don't fix on the scripture. The scripture is a finger pointing to the moon. And it's very easy. You, you, you start looking at the finger. You start saying, oh, what a marvelous finger. And you start worshiping the finger. And you forget that it's a finger pointing to the moon. And this happens in traditions. This happens a lot in Western traditions, but it also happens in Eastern traditions. We sometimes romanticize the East. When I went to Thailand, i got to tell you just a little quick little diverting story here. This was way back during the Vietnam War, and I was an R&R, and I had this cab driver, and he wanted to take me around to all the touristy spots. He was getting a kickback from a lot of them, I'm sure. And we used to get in these. You, there, i got to say, you, you hire a cab for a week. And he comes to your hotel every morning and picks you up. Same cab driver. So we used to get in these arguments, friendly kind of arguments, about where we would go. I mean, I'm supposed to be the one who's paying him, but no. I said I was interested in Buddhism. So he took me to these Buddhist temples. And these are really colleges. And they're beautiful campuses. They look like uh, Ivy League colleges. You know, they're beautifully kept grounds. And you go there in these monks in saffron robes, wandering around very peaceful and calm. And you see them studying. There's lots of gorgeous artwork. And one day we're driving on the outskirts of Thailand, and I see this temple over here, you know, that's in the suburbs, I mean, in the slums. And I said, I want to go to that temple. He said, oh, no, no, number 10 temple. I said, no, but I want to go to that temple. Well, we fought back and forth, and finally I agreed to go someplace. He wanted to take me, and he took me to this temple. And this temple was like a, a Catholic church in a Mediterranean country. You walk in, uh, the women are lighting candles and weeping for the Buddha and praying for their sons to get and daughters to get better, and the priests are blessing you with water with this little sort of br brush that's dipped in water and then holding out their hands for money and they're selling stuff. And, you know, this is as exoteric a kind of place as you could be. When we study Buddhism or Hinduism here, we're getting, in a sense, the creme de creme. We're getting the, the mystical texts which scholars and Westerners have got interested in bring over. But in these, there's just as much uh, this danger of falling to an exo a purely exoteric view of religion. And, and notice what I say here. I'm not criticizing exotericism, but I'm saying the mistake here is to only take it at that level, not to realize that it is the finger pointing to the moon. Let me tell you one little story here about uh, Namakai Norbu, 
who's a Tibetan. Uh, he's a Tibetan Lama, Rinpoche, actually. He tells the story about his own upbringing. And this is very interesting to hear about Tibet, because we tend to think of Tibet as being a very mystical, pure culture. And when he was a young man, he was studying Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, and they have these kind of spiritual colleges, like seminaries in Tibet, and people become very learned, like the Rabbi Dove Bear, exactly, and they get all sorts of degrees, and they do all sorts of practices, and they know the rites and rituals, and a young Tibetan who's going to progress in this system has to get certain empowerments, and you get these through certain sort of initiations, rituals. So Norbu went around, and he was collecting these empowerments, like collecting degrees. If you went to, you know, Yale, and then you went to Stanford, and you got a, you know, an MA, and then a PhD, and so forth. And finally, he's told to go out and see this teacher who lives off in, the, in a little community. He's not really part of the mainstream here. So Norbu asks this teacher, he says, I've come, I want this empowerment. And the teacher starts putting him off. He says, well, it's not so important. Don't worry about it. And he stays around for a week or two, but he keeps bugging this teacher. He wants this empowerment. So finally, his teacher says, okay. So the next, he says, we'll prepare for it. The next morning, they show up, and Norbu says, he knows what the ritual is, and it'll take a couple hours for somebody who knows how to do it. Well, this old guy didn't know the ritual. And he bumbled his way through, and he had a, a young monk come and read him what to do next. And, you know, you ring gongs, and you pick up things. And he'd start, and the monk would say, oh, no, that's not right. And this is this master of Tibetan Buddhism, you know. He doesn't even know how to do this simple ritual. And Norbu's horrified. This thing is turning into a farce. It goes on all morning. It goes on to the afternoon. Every time he makes a mistake, they have to back up to the beginning. He doesn't know his lines. I mean, and Norbu's just absolutely shocked. It goes on through dinner and at night. And finally, they stumble through this ritual, and Norbu has his empowerment, but he's, he's completely disillusioned with his teacher. But afterwards, later that night, the teacher calls him in and starts explaining to him what Tibetan Buddhism is really about. And he says, for the first time, I really understood. It wasn't a matter of collecting all these empowerments and initiations and so forth. And he stayed with that teacher. That became what's called his root guru, his main teacher, because that... That teacher had an esoteric understanding of his tradition. Same story, you see, as with the Balsham Tov and Rabbi Dov Bear. Exact same story. Pure tradition after tradition after tradition. So, what is the point of all this? When you study any tradition, your own tradition, and you go off and study Hinduism and Tibetan Buddhism, or any kind of Buddhism, Islam, or whatever, look at it from this perspective. There are levels and layers of meanings. Don't be satisfied with just the outward presentation. By the way, exoteric and esoteric doesn't mean they're just two. In Sufism, for instance, they have an idea of a spiritual path moving through stations. So you attain a certain level of understanding, you reach a certain station. You attain another level of understanding, you go on, you've reached a higher station. You know, everybody knows what Sufis are? The Sufis are the mystics of Islam. So they say, at one station, what is true, at the next station will be false. But then at the next station will be true again, in a different way. So whatever a teaching is, it'll be esoteric compared to what the previous understanding was. It's not, it's not even a difference in teaching, it's a difference in understanding. It gets subtler and subtler. It also your understanding is limited by your own capacity, not an innate capacity, but by your own experience. 
when you get into a tradition, it becomes at a certain point necessary to do practices like meditation, as you brought up. Why do them? Because you won't understand if you're reading Buddhism, for instance, at a certain point you just won't understand what's being talked about unless you've had the experience through the meditative practices or whatever the practices are in any tradition. But you want to you want to at least be able to see and understand that there isn't one level of understanding here, even if the people in that tradition who are explaining to you, even if that's their only level of understanding. You have to really look deeper. You have to be able to see beyond the literal out-front meaning. I'm going to give you one example from a Kabbalist tradition about something I hope you're very familiar with, how to interpret the first three words of the Torah, which I'm going to ask you to pronounce. Let me take one shot at it. Bereshith bara Elohim. Bereshith. Bereshith. Bara. Bara. Elohim. Elohim. Good. Thank you. <laughs> my my accents are <laughs> terrible. Everybody's heard that. Bereshith. 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 In the beginning, bara created Elohim God. Right. And then it goes on in the beginning, created God, the heavens and the earth, and so forth. Now the Kabbalists say, wait a minute, let's look at the first three words here. We can read that another way, can't we? It sounds like in the beginning God created, but it actually says in the beginning created God. And the Kabbalists read that, God in the form of Elohim, as in the beginning created Elohim. Now that's a startling way to look at things, isn't it? Startling. What does that mean? How could in the beginning create Elohim? I'm not going to try and give you the complete Kabbalist interpretation, but I will say this. It has to do with the fact that what God ultimately and essentially is not divided from the creation. And to think of God creating the world immediately introduces into our minds a division. God stands out there someplace and the world is here. And how did this division come about? In the beginning of time, divisions are created. Even the division between God and the world. And so when we think of God in terms of Elohim, that's a, it's very much like the Shiva. It's a form. And it draws us to a truth. But if we mistake that form, if we really think there's a division here, we've missed something. Why the word, why Elohim from a Kabbalist point of view? Because two of the characters, the letters in the Hebrew also make up the word me, I don't know how to pronounce it, me, and, and what's for object? La, El, Ella. So the Elohim is the God that guarantees the unity of subject and object in this appearance of a creation, if you like. Me, Ella, meaning who, uh, who are these? Or what are these? So it's like, it's a question of what is this, what meaning? Oh, okay, there's another meaning, right. Okay, great. So then that leads you to a question. God is the question, what are these? What is all this? But, you know, something we read, I just give you this as an example. Some Christians read it too, you know, in the beginning of the Bible, same way. In the beginning, God created the... And we just hear this. We hear this in Sunday school, we hear this in temple, we hear this, you know, over and over and over, and we never stop to think, could it have another meaning? And what would that meaning be? And why would be the, those meanings? 
So this is what I want to leave you with, is not a new teaching, but a new way of looking at teachings, to look for the deeper meanings, to understand that there are deeper meanings. There are exoteric and esoteric meanings. Not to just dismiss a form because it seems to be some ancient old ritual that doesn't mean anything anymore, but look into it. Use the form. Don't mistake the finger for the moon. See what the form is pointing to, whether it's a ritual, a teaching, a doctrine, or whatever. Don't assume your level of understanding when you encounter it for the first time is it. So you've understood it at this level like, uh, like the Rabbi Dove Bear understood it, and that's it. You come back to the story of the Rabbi Dove Bear, by the way, and we said there are, there are all these kinds of ways you can take the story. And when I said initially you could take it literally or poetically or symbolically, from my point of view, you can go right back around to a literal kind of meaning. Even if you stop with a symbolic meaning and say, well, that's a story about exotericism and esotericism, you really haven't still penetrated. If you really understood this Kabbalist text, you too would see the angels and the light. They might not be angels appearing to you in, a, in a, the way you think they would, but there would be something happening here in your own consciousness that can only be represented by something like a description of angels and light and joy and these metaphors that the mystics have used. So even a symbolic understanding that ends with the intellect isn't enough. Finally, I think what the Buddha said is very pertinent here. When the Buddha was dying at the end of his life, he lived a nice ripe life, 76 or 86 or something, and he was on his deathbed, and the last person to interview him was a young novice disciple who wanted to see him, and, uh, and here was the Buddha at the end of his path, and here was uh, someone at the beginning of theirs, and there's very little time left, and the novice came in, and the Buddha was lying there on his deathbed, and the Buddha said to him, each must struggle for themselves. The Buddhas only point the way. And all mystics, and one way you can always tell a mystic, all mystics will always say, you must know for yourself. You must taste for yourself. Shankara says, your guru, your teacher, the scriptures, all these can lead you to truth, but in order to put an end to your doubts, you yourself must realize it. So it's never an asking to believe, take anybody on faith in that sort of blind kind of faith. Test it through your own experience. Test it through meditation. Test it for yourself. All right. Thank you. Are there any questions, any comments? Who have I offended? <laughs> Speak now. Why would it... Um... Last week when we were um, talking about Hinduism and Buddhism, um, I also, in, in, the, in the book they were using, which is, makes some real kind of categorical uh, statements. And, uh, <laughs> we're not real happy with the book. They <laughs> question a lot. And uh, well, one of the things that I, I pointed out that in Judaism, within the mystical tradition, is very, very close to the Eastern understanding. It seemed to me like the Eastern um, religions except if you point out um, that it's not there's that exoteric um, aspect but it seemed like in general the Eastern religions seem, tend to be much more towards the es esoteric or the more mystical um, 
aspect of turning inward, of discovering the self, of um, seeing the non-separation through uh, detachment of, of, of a connection to the illusions of the, of the world. And, you know, the illusion that there are differences, but that, and to see that there is all the, the, the unity within by turning inward and, and this, of, of self-discovery, which is the mystic, more the mystical mm. path, which is in Judaism. However, mm -hmm. there is the, uh, the uh, very, uh, very much an, and sort of more of an emphasis upon that, not uh, of, of not entering into the mystical aspect unless one is really prepared for it. It's not the first layer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and I think, uh, and this is just from my experience and, and readings and so forth, I think it's true that in the East, in the East they've had um, long, unbroken uh, cultures, and therefore they've had long lineages, uh, unbroken lineages, which we have not had in any of the Western traditions, including Judaism, because there were these tremendous um, disruptions through exile and so forth. And, and uh, there was a maintaining of this link, but in the East, where you had these settled cultures, particularly in India, lasted 3,000 years of continuous culture, they've kept in the forefront, I think, better, they've been more successful than in the West in general, this esoteric core. So that uh, the West, uh, you know, you always find mystics, but you have to dig and look harder. In the East, the culture pushes them forward, and uh, most people, I think, would, uh, in the East, even if they themselves don't imagine becoming mystics or being on a mystical path, will recognize. You know, they see a sannyatsin, a renunciate, and, oh, that's somebody to be respected. Here's someone who's on the mystical path. And, you know, that in, in that culture, in that sense, I think it's um, generally understood. I think that's true. Sorry? Isn't also kind of like religion defined kind of like answering like the unanswerable kind of questions and that kind of takes like more of yourself to answer them than more of like learning from people and stuff that may takes more of the inner self to be able to un answer basically the unanswerable questions yeah because you can't get an, an answer in words so if there's an answer at all it can only come from inside our spiritual traditions are the most valuable inheritance human beings get from the past and they're just rich and beautiful and everything else. But you have to use them. They're not idols. And the, 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 you know, the prohibition against the idol worship, it, it speaks to this. Don't make an idol out of anything. You take it and then you use it. I have a saying around here, taking the teachings to heart. And it's something that's difficult to do sometimes. We read these sort of lofty teachings and often they come down to express them verse and, you know, and how do you relate them to your life? How do you realize that the Buddha or the Baal Shem Tov or whoever is talking about you? Do you know what I mean? It's talking about your problems, your suffering. You have to be able to say, oh, this is what he's talking about. I have a distracted mind. You watch your mind. You notice it's very distracted. So when you read, you know, some teaching about that or a teaching about uh, worshiping idols, when you find the most important thing in your life is a new car, you've got an idol problem. No, really. You know, it's a question of priorities because it becomes an absolute for you. Your happiness is going to depend on having a new car or not. This is idolatry. So it's, it's finding ways when you read teachings or hear great teachings to make them personal. Look in your own life. I always try and get people to give concrete examples from their own life about something, you know. So it does completely come, always from inside. So would you consider money like an idol? 
It all depends on how you regard it, doesn't it? Which is an inner thing, you see? It's subjective. Mm -hmm. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, you know, who's, I mean, a great saint by anybody's uh, lights in terms of she's someone who's completely renounced her personal ambition and so forth. She says a very interesting thing. She says, wherever you find yourself, if you find yourself in the gutter or you find yourself in a palace, the trick is to do God's will, not your will. So her thing isn't about everybody should give up all their money and so forth. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Wherever you yourself find yourself in this moment, what are you going to do? What, what are your priorities? What are your values right now? You know? So if you were someone um, with a lot of money, there are all sorts of ways to use that. One of the keys, one thing you can always remember, and this is true of all traditions, the difference between right and wrong is selfish and unselfish. There's a reason for that, because selfish action is actually a delusion. That's why I said something about earlier, you know, this idea that we're uh, completely encased in our own selves. This is a delusion that causes tremendous unhappiness. Loneliness and sense of isolation and so forth. And it's not that you should be compassionate and loving just because it's written in the Ten Commandments. It's that the reality of the world is such that we're all interconnected. So if you had a million dollars, are you going to use it selfishly or selflessly? And that's what makes the difference. I'm not sure. Uh, we wanted to get back. We wanted to leave about quarter two. Um, so we get back. I promise the kids we get back by one o'clock. Um, well, we there's were, so much more we could talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we were delighted so, to have you. And uh, if you uh, ever want to come by again, we're open on Sundays at 11 o'clock usually. It's open house. Uh, as I say, if you want to get some of our mailings or whatever, you can put your name down in the guest book there. Great. And you have a little, um, what we call tzedakah box? Uh, I, I do. It doesn't say, it says donation on it. We want to thank you very, very much. Thank it's you. really good morning. Very good morning. Well, in China, you're supposed to applaud back. That's the polite thing. So <laughs> you're a good audience. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes.